Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Hello, everyone. This is John Moser. I'm your host for another edition of The American Idea. This is the first time, to my knowledge, that we will be doing a podcast about a Hollywood film. Uh, I guess it's possible. Maybe maybe Jeff has done one. I don't know. But certainly it's the first one I have done. But it's not every day that a film comes out that is so closely related to a subject in uh, in U.S. history, particularly such a pivotal moment in U.S. history, uh, that is the development of the uh, of the atomic bomb. I'm, of course, I'm talking about the film Oppenheimer. And our guest today is David Krugler. Uh, and um, uh, Dr. Krugler wrote a, 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 a very good book review of the movie. Full disclosure, I have not seen the movie yet. It hasn't come to Ashland, although I'm told it's on its way, and I do intend on seeing it then. Um, let me tell you a bit about our uh, about our guest. David Krugler is professor of history at the University of Wisconsin Platteville. He is author of several works: uh, "The Voice of America" and "The Domestic Propaganda Battles." This is only a test: colon, How Washington D.C. Prepared for Nuclear War, 1919, the Year of Racial Violence, How African Americans Fought Back. He is also a, uh, a novelist. He's written two novels, spy thrillers, dealing with the roughly the same period of history that's uh, the, 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 that's roughly the time of the uh, the the development of the atomic bomb. Uh, those novels are "The Dead Don't Bleed," and that was followed up by "Rip the Angels from Heaven." Dr. Krugler is editor of uh, of the volume of our core document series dealing with the Cold War. He is also a very popular instructor in our Master of Arts program in American History and Government. David Krugler, it's very nice to have you. John, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited about this conversation on yeah. the film Oppenheimer. Yeah, so I was I was very pleased to read your uh, read your review. I had already been planning on seeing it, of course, but this makes me uh, all the more anxious to do so. Um, how is it that uh, what makes this such a good movie? And we can discuss that. I, I ultimately want to talk about what makes it a good movie from the Hollywood perspective, but also what makes it a good movie from a historical perspective. Choose whatever whatever one of those you want to start with. I think one way to answer that is to combine the questions. This is a rare film that serves the needs of a Hollywood audience while also doing good deeds in history. And whenever we think about a historical film, we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of saying, well, how realistic is it? Is it are these details historically accurate? Obviously, we need some verisimilitude. We need some accuracy. We can't have uh, uh, a film about the Civil War uh, in which the actors are running around with firearms that are historically inaccurate, anachronistic, say. AK-47s, yeah. Right, right, yeah. That, you know, I mean, if you want to do steampunk, fine. But but if you're trying to show a historical event as it happened, as we understand it, there needs to be that level of, of detail and that accuracy. 
But to try and tell the story of history within the genre of film in the ways that we do as historians with our with our facts and our footnotes and our sources and our interpretation, our context. Uh, that's not something that film does particularly well, not often. In this case, we see it being done. And I'll frame it this way. The writer Tim O'Brien, um, in his classic collection of stories, The Things They Carried, which is based upon his real-life experiences as a U.S. combat soldier in Vietnam, uh, in those stories, O'Brien, as a character, says we need to understand there is story truth and then there is happening truth. Happening truth is historical accuracy. It's the facts. Is it possible to tell good stories if you're fixated only on happening truth? His answer is no. What you need to focus on is story truth. Whether or not the details are precise, whether or not the things depicted actually happened, if you find them believable and they convey a very real story truth or what we might call a historical truth, then we have something that is very useful to us as historians and also as, as film viewers. And I think the Oppenheimer film does that. Is, and is, is that because this, this happy convergence, is it mainly because of uh, O'Brien's skill, or is it the nature of the subject? It's both. So in, in, in that book, The Things They Carried, we see it in O'Brien's skill as a storyteller um, and the ways in which he plays with the reader. Um, you know, this is especially evident in the story, How to Tell a True War Story, which really undermines the classic notion of what a good war story is and, and gets us to understand the complexities and the nuances um, and the meaningless, often, um, the meaninglessness uh, of war. Turning it to uh, Oppenheimer, I think what we see going on here is that Nolan has done a deep dive into the historical monograph on which the film is based. Mm -hmm. uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning biography published in 2005, uh, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird. Um, and the historian Martin J. Sherwin, who is, who is now deceased. Um, having read that book and then seen the film, uh, I'm struck in a good way at how Nolan has brought out the historical details and flourishes that capture Oppenheimer uh, as a complex personality and in vivid ways. Hmm. At the same time, Nolan is willing to take risks or make changes to what actually happened in order to meet the needs of a Hollywood film. Let me give a specific example. Please. Um, in real life, uh, Oppenheimer, as a young student in Cambridge, he was a brilliant uh, young man, um, but he was lonely, uh, suffering some uh, psychological troubles, and he, he made a rash um, and risky uh, decision to a doctor an apple that his tutor with whom he was having problems would most likely eat um you know so there's there's strong metaphorical significance right the poisoned apple um and in real life you know he was caught and he was almost expelled in the movie we have this wonderful scene uh where killian murphy playing uh, oppenheimer wakes up and you know, he regrets what he's done and he rushes to the classroom to take the apple away before the tutor can uh, bite into it. It's prominently displayed 
uh, on his desk. It so happens that Nils Bohr, the, the Danish physicist, is visiting and he's talking with Oppenheimer's tutor, and it's Bohr who picks up the apple. Um, and we have this dramatic moment where Oppenheimer has to grab the apple rudely out of uh, Bohr's hand so that he's not sickened uh, by by the doctored uh, apple. And this is explained by him saying, oh, there's a wormhole in the apple, which is, you know, cute by two half. But we have <laughs> this. The physics. <laughs> yeah, the so, physics. Yeah. Was, intended. was Bohr even there historically at this time? Bohr was, I don't think, present at Cambridge. He, he might have been. I mean, yeah. I, I think he was to give a lecture that that may be historically accurate. And that this is just a fine grind, deep, fine grain detail. I don't have them uh, at, at the tip of my mind. Um, but let's say he wasn't there. I mean, it's still a great dramatic moment. And we do know that Bohr and Oppenheimer had lots of interactions. So that's story truth. Right. So even if the details don't line up. Um, that's just fine because the so, story truth we get is that they had a relationship and that Oppenheimer, you know, struggled psychologically and emotionally while right. he was learning physics. And and we know that the basic incident of the of the apple happened, right? So it's not it's not a complete fabrication. Right. But right. but it but it's it it is presented the way it is presented. Well, and 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 frankly, if 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 the way this was resolved is he was caught as opposed to grabbing it before it could do harm, uh, he is obviously portrayed as a much less sympathetic character. Right. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, that's a great observation. Um, we see growth of the character uh, as he goes through his struggles, which is what all good stories should do in one yeah. form or another. Now, one thing that you make clear in your review is that the movie uh, frames the story in terms of his uh, his the, the hearings to determine if he was going to maintain his security clearance, um, 1954, the Atomic Energy Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, why did the uh, why did the, the 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 director, screenwriter, whoever's decision ultimately that was, why choose that framing? What's what what is what makes that important and powerful? Well, we can assume that. Christopher Nolan as the director and having a, a, a strong part in the writing of the screenplay gave this a lot of thought and there's intentionality in the choice. I, I think it's a risky one because for all the glamour we associate with the Red Scare, and it's not all good glamour, right? But we think of, you know, these dramatic moments of, of senators thundering, they have a list and, and people being grilled uh, under um, Klieg lights in televised hearings, but but the reality is that much of the Red Scare was a very dreary affair um, in which people are being asked highly pedantic questions about prior associations. They're often not able to remember or they don't want to answer. And so it, it becomes a, a grueling dynamic and that's not gonna play well on film. I wouldn't think so, but but Nolan makes it work um, for a few reasons. One, he's, he has an, a superb cast, and, and, and we, we should talk a, a little bit later about how well Killian Murphy, the Irish actor, does as Oppenheimer, and also Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of a, um, a narrative choice, it allows Nolan to do lengthy flashbacks and then have a running event. So we can come back to the hearings, and when Oppenheimer's asked questions about his past and his associations with known communists. 
that provides a segue into these lengthy scenes filmed in color about those episodes in Oppenheimer's life. And that also takes us to Los Alamos through the Manhattan Project and, and even through uh, the use of the bombs uh, in Oppenheimer's time um, with the AEC prior to this hearing in 1954. Yeah. So it, it, the upshot, I don't know how much, I, I know this much without having seen it, uh, I know this from the history that that Oppenheimer did lose his security clearance over this. What was it exactly? You you suggest in your um, in your review that there is a certain amount of, of of vagueness that remains about why exactly that happened to him. Certainly, it's a it's a pivotal event. It's the end of his work for the uh, uh, for the U.S. government. The end of his formal work as a as a nuclear physicist. Or theoretical physicist, um, what really drives it? I mean, go, I'm going to stop there. Just let you go with that. I think what drives it is that once Oppenheimer had fulfilled a task that he was singularly suited to do, um, he had the knowledge of physics to oversee uh, the construction of a workable bomb, but he also had sufficient administrative skills and the ability to soothe difficult personalities uh, to bring the team together. Mm. Uh, and so once he completed this extraordinary task, his usefulness uh, diminished a great deal. And because Oppenheimer was an outspoken opponent of the development of thermonuclear or hydrogen bombs, um, this further sidelined him add to it the intensity of the Red Scare. And I think we can say 53, 54 is, is the peak. This is when McCarthy is doing his most damage. And his fall comes in, in starts in 1954. And he's dead within a few years. Uh, but that period, 1953 to 1954, um, is, is really the, the peak of the, of the Red Scare. And Oppenheimer gets caught up in that. And because his associations with communists were well known, even at the time he was recruited, there was a lot to work with in terms of his opponents uh, bringing him down. I wouldn't go so far as to say he was made a sacrificial uh, lamb, um, but I do think that his diminished usefulness, as well as the intensity of the Red Scare, created a situation in which there was no happy outcome for him. And the film does a really good job of showing Oppenheimer clinging to the belief that this hearing is a fair proceeding. Uh, and Emily Blunt, as his wife, sees through this. Now, Kitty Harrison, uh, Oppenheimer's wife, was for a long time a communist, a formal member of the Communist Party. You know, and that's one of the troubles uh, Oppenheimer is in because he's married to a former communist. Um, in the film, we're shown her sparring heatedly with one of Oppenheimer's in inquisitioners uh, in real life, a man named Roger Robe, R-O-B-B. In the movie, he's played by uh, Jason Clark. And she just will not back down from Clark because she understands this is, you know, the fix is in. He's going to lose his security cl clearance. They might as well go down fighting. And she's really frustrated that Oppenheimer does not fight um, because he apparently believes that he can come out of this with his security clearance. But she sees what he does not, that the fix is in. 
Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. I'm Dr. John Moser, professor of history at Ashland University and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. The MAG program is for teachers who want to master their craft by building content knowledge from original documents, from the words of those who lived and shaped our history, and not from textbooks or lectures. Our program is built around the discussion of original sources, and our faculty, both from both Ashland University and from across the country, is committed to this approach. We believe that the best way to get to know our past is to have a conversation with those who were there. James Madison, Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Theodore Roosevelt, and so many more. We offer two programs for working teachers and a broad selection of core and elective courses. You can learn more at tah.org slash programs. When you say fight, do you mean defend these these communist ties or or to say that that well that was a time of my life that's in the past and and this does not affect my loyalty to the united states it does not affect my loyalty to the united states um i don't think that kitty in real life was saying to oppenheimer well you know let's just make an apology that we made youthful mistakes mm-hmm. um she's going to the next level and saying there was nothing wrong with what we did. You know, in the context of the times, we made choices to support this ideology because we thought it could fix glaring problems we saw. Um, We should establish that Oppenheimer was not a member of the Communist Party, Um, but he had people in his immediate intimate world who were his brother, uh, Frank, for example, and of course his his wife, uh, uh, Kitty. Uh, And he attended meetings um, in which communist members uh, were present. His license plate was taken down by the FBI. This is, you know, all in his security file before he's even selected to be director of the uh, Manhattan Project in in Los Alamos. Uh, but I think what she's saying is, you need to be upfront and proud of what you've done, and that the fact you're married to a former communist, your brother was one. Or that you went to these meetings, it did not, as you said so nicely, John, affect your loyalty whatsoever. Hmm. There's a great scene where um, Edward Teller is at the hearing and he's asked to assess Oppenheimer, and he he, he leads by saying, you know, I have no doubt that that um, Robert is a loyal citizen of the United States, but and this is when the other shoe drops. Teller damningly questions some of the judgments that Oppenheimer made. And what's really great about the film is that if you've been paying attention to the relationship between Teller and Oppenheimer at Los Alamos, Mm -hmm. you know that Teller wanted to dedicate his time and talents to the um, planning of a thermonuclear weapon. Now that was not going to be useful in the short term to produce a weapon at Los Alamos. Uh, but Teller was an obstinate individual, mm-hmm. and, and Oppenheimer, in, in a great scene in the movie, says, look, you can just work on it all you want. We'll talk once a week about it. And I think in that scene, in the hearing, what Teller is saying to the security board is, I think that Oppenheimer made bad decisions about the physics we pursued, or, or some of the decisions about the, the project. But what the board hears 
is that Oppenheimer made bad decisions about personnel. Very interesting. And, and it's, the record does not show, I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that Oppenheimer knew the level of Soviet espionage within hmm. the uh, Los Alamos project. That he, and, he, and we know that Teller that went on to be father of, the, of father of the hydrogen bomb. Right. Teller sort of yeah. becomes, you know, Oppenheimer 2.0. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he kind of replaces him, sort of like Paul Nitze replaces George Kennan in terms sure. of uh, putting together basic Cold War policies in the early years of the Cold War. Well, maybe let, let's talk about uh, Killian Murphy's portrayal of Oppenheimer. Uh, on the one hand, when I first heard he had the role, that's strange. He became he's he's best known to to I think most people as the lead in Peaky Blinders. This is obviously a very different kind of character. Although it has to be said that haunting photo, that haunting image of him with his with his hat, mm -hmm. uh, really what really puts you in mind of that famous photo of Oppenheimer. Uh, but but in, in many ways, he seemed to me anyway, like an odd choice. What 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 does he bring to the role? He thoroughly inhabits Oppenheimer as a character. Uh, I, it's just he captures the contradictions. Oppenheimer was someone who could be highly sensitive, but also callous. Um, he could be open minded. Uh, but then narrowly uh, focused. Uh, he was so consumed by his work that his personal relations uh, suffered, even as he recognized his failings as a husband uh, and as a father. And as an actor, Killian Murphy captures this um, in with with precision and and also gentleness. There's there's no overacting. There's no gesticulation. He's a very quiet actor, and he moves fluidly, and he, he really, I think, captures uh, Oppenheimer uh, in this way. And Oppenheimer was was famously painfully thin. I don't think he weighed more than 130 pounds at any point in his life, and he was 5'9 or 5'10. Uh, and so, you know, Killian Murphy is still has, you know, an actor's physique, but he's able to convey that gauntness. Mm. Um, you know, Oppenheimer famously didn't like to eat. I mean, people had to remind him to eat. He was just so singularly focused on his, on his work, um, and his obligations. And, and Killian Murphy just, just shows how the, um, process of, of leading the team at Los Alamos and then his, his, um, um, guilt and the pain he feels about all the lives lost as a result of the use of those bombs, like how it just, it, wears him down he, he's able to show this through just the just facial gestures it's really incredible this is something that's fascinating to me not not particularly about the performance which i haven't seen but about oppenheimer the man he is not like leo zillard who you know who tries to organize opposition to the use of the bomb before it's before it's done um and in fact to all accounts that i have read he was delighted that it a that it tested and and then and then that it that it worked against the Japanese and then it's only after that that he develops uh, develops his regrets. Maybe I have that wrong, or maybe the the film portrays it differently. But what is it that that causes him to have this change of heart? Well, to the events that are taking place as the bomb is being built, and and you describe nicely the dynamic for Oppenheimer, the possibility the Germans might develop such a weapon was absolutely horrifying. 
and he devotes himself, he gives himself over to the project because he is absolutely set on preventing the Germans from obtaining a nuclear weapon. And, and think about, you know, a nuclear bomb in the hands of Hitler. Mm-hmm. Once it's determined that the Germans are not going to complete a workable weapon, they've made a bad choice about um, the research, the attention turns to Japan. And so this is when I think Oppenheimer starts to, I won't say waffle, but but begin to think a little bit more critically about the repercussions of developing uh, nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what keeps him on the side of doing it is in large part because Japan is still fighting. And so if this weapon can be used to end the war with an enemy that shows no sign of quitting, then that needs to be done. There's also the element of the challenge, right? I mean, we know that the bomb works, but (laughs) Oppenheimer and his team did not know whether it was going to work. And Mm -hmm. there were uh, relentless trials and tribulations and difficulties and uncertainties attending every step of the way, right up until the moment of the Trinity test on July 16th, uh, 1945. So this shows the complexity of, of Oppenheimer. I mean, he's driven by these, by this, this motivation that, well, we've got to end the war, but also let's see if we can do this. And then once the bombs are used, I think there's another level of, uh, or another um, uh, effect uh, on Oppenheimer's thinking. Uh, what if we have an arms race? You know, the next war, if it's fought with these weapons, will be the last war because there will be destruction. That's why he devotes himself toward, uh, or advocates, international control of atomic energy because he believes this is the only way to avoid um, a globally destructive conflict in the future that will wipe out humankind. So you, we have this evolution of his thinking, which I think the film does really well because you know, that could be rendered in a very black and white way and it's not. Okay. The the, the film sets up as Oppenheimer's arch nemesis, uh, Louis Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr. Uh, can you tell us a, a, a bit about the nature of the conflict between these two men and then how Downey portrays Strauss? Sure. So uh, Louis Strauss is depicted in the movie in 1959 when he was nominated late in Dwight D. Eisenhower's second term Mm. to be Secretary of Commerce. And that's an important contextual fact because it means uh, uh, Strauss is only going to be Commerce Secretary for a year and a half or so. Mm. But he sees this as the uh, icing uh, on the cake of his career, which included service as as an admiral, uh, and also as director, the first director of the Atomic Energy Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of his relationship with Oppenheimer, in the film, we are shown that that Strauss was a great admirer of Oppenheimer and tried to recruit him to be a physicist at the New School when Strauss was was running it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there he develops a grudge against Oppenheimer. The film shows us that uh, Strauss believes he was slighted. Uh, by Oppenheimer, but the real source of the conflict is is that Strauss is pushing the development of the so-called super thermonuclear weapons, and Oppenheimer is is resisting him. Uh, Strauss is also rankled that um, Oppenheimer did not consider, or even will not consider, after revelations of atomic espionage, that the Soviets might have obtained information about how to build their own thermonuclear weapon. Hmm. 
so this comes out in a second set of flashbacks. The film also relies on the depiction of the 1959 confirmation hearings for Strauss. Uh, for some reason, he liked to pronounce his name Strauss, though we would say Strauss. Oh, okay. Uh, typically, yeah. Um, and so those flashbacks set up the um, revenge that Strauss gets against Oppenheimer for all of these problems. And I don't want to say more than that because that would okay. that would be a, a spoiler. Robert Downey Jr. is 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 brilliant, as said. Uh, the 1959 confirmation hearings as flashbacks are filmed uh, in black and white. And I've read some commentary that Nolan chose to do so because the black and white shows fact-based events, whereas the color scenes um, are adapting or adding things not in the historical record. I don't think that's a distinction that should be taken too far because the color scenes you know, the flashbacks growing out of the 1954 security board hearings are very fact-based, even as uh, we discussed earlier, they add certain details. That's also occurring in, in the black and white hearings uh, as well. Um, now, what that means, because we have these this black and white scenes and they're done in a, in a, a really um, a washed out way, um, you know, you don't have that richness like you see in, in some of the old black and white films or in black and white photos. There's a, there's right. a lot of washed out uh, white and, and gray. And yet, even working with that type of film, um, Robert Downey Jr. so thoroughly and chillingly conveys Strauss's animosity toward uh, Oppenheimer. I mean, one, deal, one detail that stood out to me, and I put this in the review, is they're taking a lunch break in the confirmation hearings, which is used as a as a, a moment for Strauss to to tell us um, an aide who's helping him with the hearings, tell him about his past interactions with Oppenheimer, and you know he's getting irritated. And as he cinches his tie up to go back to the hearings, it's as if he's tightening a noose around Oppenheimer's neck. Mm. And, and you know, Downey just does an extraordinary job. He and yeah. Killian Murphy are are just together an amazing yeah. pair and there are a lot of scenes with them together through the flashbacks it, it, details like that I, I always i always wonder is, is this just something that downey improvised as part of his character or is it something that di the director gave him i will probably have no way of knowing that but uh certainly a well let's hope they talk about it because i would love to know you know how much of that was nolan and how much yeah. was Downey? I imagine it was the, the two of them uh, working together. Yeah, yeah. Well, no doubt. If you're accustomed to thinking of Downey these days as Tony Stark, um, sure. you know, Louis Strauss <laughs> displaces the Tony Stark <laughs> character pretty well. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, Chris Downey is a, a has a, a long career that uh, that spans all kinds of characters. So I'm not not I'm not at all surprised to hear that he put in a, a terrific performance. Um, any uh, any final thoughts about the, about this film? Uh, why it, it's obviously made a, a significant impact on you. Um, just to to sum up, why why everybody who is listening to this podcast should, if they haven't already done so, go out and see this film. I think it takes a historical moment that is really well known and, and of course, quite significant. The development of the bombs, the use of them to end the war with Japan. We're focusing on, on the leading personality and making that, that happen. Um, there, are, there are a lot of complexities to that story 
And I think what's really helpful is that people can go to this and understand that history is not always clear with easy answers and that that heroic figures have all of these other features to their personality. Uh, Louis Strauss is not entirely evil. Oppenheimer is not an entirely good. Um, and, and to offer another thought, I think the popular image of the Red Scare sort of revolves around the question, well, were they communists or not? And, and we now know, you know, there were. Um, the Manhattan Project was embedded with communists. But for a lot of people, it might be, well, Oppenheimer, you know, associated with communists, so he, he must have been one or sympathetic to it. Um, yet he could be a loyal American, sympathetic to communism, and carry out this job of building an atomic bomb, which ends the war with Japan. I mean, he could, you know, have these associations. And he gets ground up at a security hearing because there's no space then for such a person. But we can look back and say, well, you know, he didn't fit into the, to the box that uh, his contemporaries were trying to, to put him in. And that's how history works. Oh, David Krugler, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Uh, thank you, John, and thank you, Jeremy, for having me. I uh, really enjoyed it. And I want to thank again our listeners for uh, for for tuning in. Um, Hollywood doesn't often get it right when it comes to history, but it sure sounds like they've done it in this case. So uh, for The American Idea, I'm John Moser. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.